great to be with you this morning. There was a missionary in the 19th century named C.T. Studd. He wrote a poem, and the opening stanza of his poem says this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Those two lines, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want these lines and the message of these lines to be lodged into your, your mind and not depart from you from this morning. Your life matters. Your life matters. You can do nothing to change the past, yesterday or last week or the last 10 years, or quite frankly, your entire life up until this point, you can't do anything to change that. What supremely matters is how you live from this day on, how you finish your life. Paul himself understood this. In Philippians 3, Paul said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, you can't change your past, but by God's grace, empowered by the Spirit, your future can be lived for Christ's glory. From this day forward, you can go all out for Christ and finish your life strong, listen, with no regrets. Not because you look back and, real, and think you did everything perfectly, no one will ever do that, but because you lived for Christ's glory above all other things. This is, I believe, the Holy Spirit's message from this text. Remember two weeks ago I talked about all scriptures breathed out by God. It is God-breathed. It's not mere human words, but what scripture says, God says. And the Holy Spirit is, of course, the divine author of scripture. So I believe that's the Holy, this is the message from the Holy Spirit from this passage. So let's just kind of think through the context just for a moment, and then we'll jump into verses 6 to 8 in particular. Remember last week... Reed covered verses 1 to 5 and just touched on verse 5 near the end of his message. And so I want to just touch on it again uh, to help us understand why Paul is saying what he's saying in verses 6 to 8. In verse 5, Paul was urging Timothy to continue in faithfulness all the way to the end. If you remember, if you remember verses 1 to 4, Paul urged Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and instruction, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll wander off into myths, shipwreck their faith. And Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, continue and be faithful. Fulfill your ministry. Verse 5, he says this, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And that last phrase, fulfill your ministry, is the point. Be sober-minded for the purpose of fulfilling your ministry. Endure suffering for the purpose of fulfilling your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Complete your ministry. 
Paul was urging Timothy to see his ministry through to the end. And that's the call today. Every Christian purchased by the blood of Jesus is called to ministry. Okay, everyone, every single one of us is called to ministry. The word ministry in verse 5 is the, the Greek word diakonia. It's part of a word group that, that includes serve, service, servant, all of these words communicating the same thing, ministry. We are called to Christ's service. Every single one of us, if we belong to Christ. And as such, we are to be faithful to the end. Now, of course, we would agree that we're all part of the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, to make disciples of all nations. And it's important to see that as part of our calling. But it's also important to understand that we are called to start right where we are and not always have our eyes set out there somewhere looking for someone else to minister to. Of course, God wants, us, wants to use us beyond the walls of this church and beyond the walls of our home and even perhaps beyond the borders of our state and nation. Of course he does. But remember what Christ told the disciples in Acts chapter 1. And they said, is it now? Is now the time for you to restore Israel's kingdom? And, and Jesus said, you will receive power when the, Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses Where? In Jerusalem, which happened to be where they were, right? And then in Judea, which was the surrounding area, and then in Samaria, which was further out, and then to the uttermost parts of the world, but starting in Jerusalem. This means serving and ministering to those in front of us is of utmost importance first. So, of course, that means serving, ministering to those in your home, and in the church, and in your neighborhood, and in your, in your place of work, and in our broader community, and then moving out from there. So Paul urges Timothy to be faithful to the end, to complete his ministry, to see it through all the way to the end. And then Paul gives in verses 6 to 8, I think what could have been written over Paul's life. If Paul would have had a tombstone, this would be what would be on his tombstone, right? It's his epitaph. It's, it's the, the story of his life. It was what he was all about, and at the end, he could say it by God's grace with boldness. Let me read it again, verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, or in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What's the point of Paul saying these words? He's not simply reminiscing about his life. Boy, it's been a good run. That's not what he's doing right? Something far more significant than that. Paul says these words to encourage Timothy, to motivate Timothy to fulfill his ministry, his service, because Paul at the end of his life can now see that he has. 
And I think it's meant to motivate us as well. May we, by God's grace, see these and receive these God-breathed words to be a great help for us, for us to finish strong. So here's what Paul does. Okay, verses 6 to 8. He looks at his life from three perspectives. He looks at his life in the present. What was going on at the time when he wrote this? Then he looks at his life, looking to the past. He looks at the course of his life up to that point, And then he looks to the future. And here's the challenge from this morning. May we, by God's grace and with the help of his spirit, live in such a way that we finish our lives strong and can say the same thing as Paul here. Of course, we're not apostles, but we want to finish strong, don't we? I I know you do. Every person who is truly born of the Spirit wants to live for Christ's glory and wants to finish their life strong with no regrets. So let's look at and learn from and be motivated by Paul this morning. First, what Paul does is he looks at his life from a present perspective. We see that in verse 6. Here's what he said. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He says, I am now already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Paul's entire life, from the Damascus Road to this moment in a Roman jail cell, awaiting having his head chopped off, was an offering to God. All of it was. Romans 12.1. You've heard these words, perhaps. Many of you have, I know. He, he says, in light of the mercies of God, present your bodies or offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is holy and acceptable to him. His life was laid down for God in the service of others, in the service of those that he was called to minister to. Now, Paul communicated this numerous times, and he lived this way all the way to the end. Listen to these words in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love those words. He says, I will gladly be expended for the good of your souls. I will go all the way, Paul said. I'll be drained to the bottom for your sake. And as I was thinking about this the past few days, I couldn't help but think of what it means to be a mother, right? I mean, you, you labor to take care of your children, and, and this is the way it is in my home anyways. And I, I, I spend enough days home with, with four or five kids, but not every day, okay? And I come home from work at the end of the day, and my wife has been home with children, and, and, um, and I'm sure she thinks that going to the office all day is like vacation, Right? She labors, she lays her life down, she is spent for them. That's what mothers do. What an honor to do it for the sake of Christ. What an honor to do it for the sake of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said just earlier in this letter to Timothy. He said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Paul endured everything. And if you look at that context, it's all of the sufferings, all of the persecutions, all of the discomfort, all of the imprisonments, all the pressure, all the slanders. He endured it all for the sake of God's people. Paul didn't sit around pouting that he was being mistreated. He didn't murmur. There's no hidden letters from Paul where he wrote to somebody with all of his list of complaints about how badly he was treated. He endured it all for the sake of God's people. Paul certainly understood the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3.16 when John said, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Paul saw his life as one to be laid down, one to be spent, one to be poured out as an offering to God, one to be poured out for the good of those that he was called to serve. In one sense, his entire life in Christ was an offering. But in our text, what we see is Paul's final offering to God. He is to be poured out as a drink offering, and I think that language is significant. He was to be poured out as a drink offering. It's a beautiful picture that Paul gives us here. It's reference to the offering of wine that was to, to accompany every sacrifice under the old covenant. The offering of a bull or a ram or a goat was not complete until the drink offering was given. In Numbers chapter 15, it goes through this, I think, verses 1 to 16 or so, and it says a few different times that when the drink offering is given, it was a pleasing aroma to God. Paul had served the Lord Jesus faithfully for years, and now the only thing that was left for Paul to do to complete his ministry, to accomplish his ministry, was for his blood to be spilled and to die as a faithful martyr to be poured out as a drink offering. This was Paul's curtain call, if you will. It was his final offering to God, and it was to have his blood spilled as a faithful witness to Christ. Paul knows for certain that he's going to die. He actually used the same phrase, drink offering, earlier. I think, I think Philippians was written about five years before 2 Timothy, where he says... Um, and even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. But there, he wasn't sure if he was going to die or not. He said, even if I am, here he knows for certain. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And yet, Paul was not defeated at all. There's a note of triumph in Paul's words. He knows that the, the time of his departure has come, but he's not sad. 
He's not discouraged. He knows that the sovereign of the universe could rescue him at any moment. You read through the book of Acts, and we see this happening at least a few times, right? Peter and some of the disciples are rescued out of prison. Peter, when he's by himself between two guards, he's rescued and delivered out of prison. God can certainly do this. Paul had been rescued numerous times from death, but Paul also knew that his death for the glory of Christ and the good of those that he was called to serve would be a victory as well. In Revelation 12, it talks about how the saints overcome Satan. You remember how they overcome Satan? It says, and they have conquered him or overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto death. That's how they overcome. That's how they overcame. That's how we overcome. Paul's life was an offering, spent and poured out for God's glory and for the good of others. And I ask you this morning, is your life being spent for God? Is your life an offering to God? Is your life being spent for the good of those around you that God has called you to serve? At the end... Faced with the prospect of dying, Paul saw his present circumstances as being poured out as a drink offering. And I think, what a way to die. What a way to die. I can think of a lot of different ways. Now, I'm not even talking about physically, but I can think of a lot of different ways I don't want to be facing death in certain circumstances. With all kinds of regrets and all kinds of, I wish I would have, oh my goodness, this and that and the other thing. I didn't live, I wasted my life. Facing death now, it was not so for Paul. He saw his life as being poured out as a drink offering. To be faithful all the way to the end and, and then to see your dying breath as an offering to God. Brothers and sisters, this is an aroma pleasing to God. So Paul saw his present, he looked at his life in the present and saw his life as being poured out as a drink offering but Paul also looked at the past and the course of his life. And we see that in verse 7, where Paul says this. Now, th these are the words that everyone knows. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, if we want to be able to say the same thing at the end of our lives, and I have no doubt that you want to be able to say the same thing. You want to be able to say, I fought to the very end. I, I finished the course. I kept the faith. I didn't shipwreck. You want to be able to say that. If you do, I, I believe you do, then we need to hear the three ways that Paul described his life in ministry. He described it as a good fight to be fought. He described his life in ministry as a race to be completed. He saw it as the faith to be kept. In fact, it's interesting, in the original language, in the, the New Testament was written in Greek, and in the original language, uh, well, in Greek, the, the order of words have more significance than in English. 
And that's actually the way that it reads in the Greek. It literally reads this way, the good fight I have fought. The emphasis is on the fight, the good fight. It says, the race I have finished, the faith I have kept. So let's think about these one at a time. First, Paul saw his life and ministry as one of fighting the good fight. You realize, don't you, that we are in a war. We're in a battle, right? Um, Paul saw his life and ministry as a battle that, he, that was to be fought consistently day in and day out. It's interesting, the, word, the Greek word for fight is the word agonizomai. I wonder if you recognize a word in there. Agonize or agony. Paul knew <clears throat> that life and ministry was one of agony, one of fighting, one of warfare. And so did Timothy because Paul urged him to fight in these two letters. In 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, wage the good warfare. At the end of the first letter, Paul again exhorted Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight. This was not a suggestion for Timothy. This was a command from an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we find it in Scripture. So this is also a command for us to fight. At the end of Paul's life, he could look back and see the conflict and see the battle and say, I fought the good fight. Now it begs the question, who or what was it that Paul was fighting and that he urges us to fight and that he urged Timothy to fight against? Well, of course, it's the spiritual fight against Satan and all of his evil forces, right? The great passage on spiritual warfare makes it clear, Ephesians 6, that ultimately our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. Martin Luther wrote the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where we sing the words, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. And he certainly does. Paul fought to advance the kingdom and gospel of Christ against spiritual forces of evil, and his desire was to push back darkness wherever by God's grace he could. And he fought to the end. Ministry and serving is a fight. And since we're all called to ministry and service, if we're bought by Christ's blood, then we're all called to this fight. But it is a fight. Think about the the labor and the battle, for those who are parents, of raising your kids to know Christ and to fear the Lord and to honor Christ and to live for Christ. It is a battle. Think of the battle to pray for and share the gospel with Christ and and talk with people and try to overcome objections and, and help them see their need for Christ, their sin and the beauty of Jesus and so forth. It's a battle. Prayer ministry is a fight. 
One reason why, and this is not a knock, okay? Um, There are other reasons why. But one reason why I think we struggle praying is because it's a battle. It's a fight. It's a spiritual engagement that requires spiritual weapons to do war. I think of uh, in the book of Colossians, Paul commends a man named Epaphras. And he says, Epaphras always wrestles in prayer that you would be complete in all the will of God, I think is what it says. But that that phrase, wrestles in prayer, the, the word wrestle is the word agonizomai. He always fights and labors and wrestles in prayer for you. To to pray, to engage in that kind of service and ministry is a fight. But, brothers and sisters, we also need to recognize it's a good fight. It is a good fight. It is the kind of fighting that God is pleased with. Right? We're not to be brawlers always looking to get into an argument with somebody. That's not the kind of people we want to be. But there is a way that Christians are called to fight and God says, amen, I'm, that's great. I'm going, to stre- I'm going to give you power and strength to fight that way. And it's in this good fight. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not of this world, they're not carnal, but they are mighty in God to pull down strongholds. In fact, I would suggest that it displeases God when we act and live as though life is a picnic on the beach when the war is raging all around. And if of, of any group of people on the face of the earth, Christians ought to see things clearly and recognize we are in a battle. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I think it was John Piper who used the, the, uh, the phrase of having a wartime mentality. And he says, you know, when America was in World War II, for instance, there, were, there was a wartime mentality for the whole country. And we're to see life in this world, in Christ, that way. Paul looked back and said, I have fought the good fight. I left it all on the battlefield. But then Paul also went on to say, or to, to compare the, the life and ministry as a race to be completed. He says, I have finished the race. The idea here is that Paul had finished the course that God had set him on in ministry. The word race here, uh, really alludes to a course on which you would run a race. Think of like a cross-country course, you know, um, and you, you, you stay on that course in order to run the race. It's not just running aimlessly, but it's running on a particular course. In fact, I, th- I think the New American Standard says, I have finished the course. Paul started it on the Damascus Road, And now here at the end of his life, he can say, I finished. I've completed my course. I think that's amazing. In fact, earlier in Paul's life in Acts chapter 20, it's actually one of my favorite verses I think often about, and I want this to get into my mind and heart so deeply. Paul says this, but I do not account my life of any value 
nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. That's what Paul, he says, my life only matters to one end, that I finish my course. That's what Paul said years before he wrote this letter to Timothy, and now at the end of his life, he says, I have finished the race. I have finished my course. Now, listen, nobody wakes up one day and just happens to be on course. No one haphazardly stays on course. Right? You will not just happen to be on the right course at the end of your life. And, of course, we also know we could, we could make a list, I'm sure, of some who appeared to start out on course and then got off and never got back on. Long ago when um, ships were out at sea, in order to stay on course, they had to keep track of which star? Yeah, the, the pole star, the north star, right? They had to keep track of the north star so that they knew if that's there, if I go this way, you know, if I need to go east, there's the north star, okay? And it's the same for us, except for us, the north star is Christ. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him. And there's so many distractions, so many things we can get our eyes off of him and onto other things, even good things, Many things that are not good, of course, do. But we want to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. The writer of Hebrews said this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's lay that aside and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the course, the race that's set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, Paul said, I finished the race. Let's get on course. Let's get in the race. And let's stay in the race and on course with our eyes fixed on Christ. Finally, Paul compared life and ministry to as, as consisting of keeping the faith. Paul, says, I have, Paul said, I have kept the faith. The faith. Now, my understanding of this is that Paul is saying he remained faithful to the body of truth, to the good deposit of doctrine that had been entrusted to him. The faith. Paul says. I, I don't think Paul is simply saying, I have kept believing all the way to the end. But rather that he guarded and kept the sacred trust that Christ gave to him in terms of truth. For Paul, the responsibility to write, communicate, and keep the truth, the good deposit, that's the phrase that's used a few different times in First and Second Timothy, this good deposit for Paul to, to keep this and write and communicate unstained was all important. In, phrase, in, in fact, that little phrase, the good deposit, alludes to a treasure, something precious, that is returned to the owner of the treasure in the same manner in which it was received. 
Paul confidently, and it was not in his own strength, but he confidently said, I have kept the faith. Now, I'm not going to get back into last week's message, but, and, but this has been a theme throughout First and Second Timothy. We live in a time when so many things more and more are up for grabs in terms of truth, that people are jettisoning, is that the right word? Jettisoning <laughs> um, in order to fit in with our culture. Paul said, I have kept the faith. And we must too. So we've looked at how Paul views his life from the perspective of the present as a drink offering. He looks to the past, the course of his life, that he finished the course of his life in ministry. And what Paul does at the end of this text is he looks to the future. Verse 8. He said, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul, brothers and sisters, Paul looked forward and saw a crown in his future. The word henceforth, of course, means looking forward or, or in the future. And I find this actually quite stunning. Paul looked forward to judgment day. Right? It says that day, speaking of judgment day, and the judge, the righteous judge, he looked forward to that day with joyful anticipation and not dread. And the reason why was was because he was expecting a glorious reward. This language of a crowning is used a couple of other places in the New Testament. Here in 2 Timothy 4.8, it's called the crown of righteousness. In James 1.12, it's called the crown of life. In 1 Peter 5.4, it's called the crown of glory. I think it all communicates the same thing. It's about a reward for faithful service. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we are saved for good works and for service and for ministry and we will be rewarded for such. We see the word award here. Paul says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. Of course, the word award means reward or to render payment or even to repay. This is an amazing and breathtaking thing. If you understand the gospel and grace and God's holiness, the only thing we deserve from God is judgment and wrath. But Christ, on the cross, in himself, absorbed all of that for all who trust in him. Jesus took what we deserve so that we could gain what he alone deserves. The Lord gives a crown 
to those who live a life of steadfast, faithful service. The Lord, the righteous judge, will say on that day, well done, good and faithful service. Enter into the joy of your master and then he will crown us. Now we sang earlier, (laughs) what are we going to do with those crowns? They're not going to stay on our heads long, are they? I don't know if it's going to take two seconds or ten minutes, whatever. We're going to take them off and we're going to throw them at the feet of Christ. When we get that crown, we're not going to say, wow, I really did do good. We're going to take them off and we're going to throw them at the feet of our Savior. Here's the question. Paul saw a crown in his future. He had that strong, indomitable hope. Who else can look forward like Paul with this kind of eager, joyful expectation? Paul tells us. He says, this is not just for me, but it's also for those or for all who have loved his appearing. Those who love the appearing of Christ. And I suppose this makes total sense. Paul lived in such a way that when he thought of the future and the coming of Christ and judgment and thought of Christ the righteous judge, he leaned forward. He leaned into it with expectant joy rather than shrinking back in shame. 1 John 2.28 says, And beloved, let us abide in him so that when he appears we may not shrink in shame from him at his coming. And so all who have loved his appearing, who have this love, this longing for the appearing of Christ, can joyfully expect to be crowned from our righteous judge. Amen? So Paul looked to his life in the present. He looked to his life and he looked at the course of his life in the past. He looked to the future and this was meant to motivate Timothy to press on, to finish strong and I think it's meant to motivate us as well. So here's the, here, here's the question. Did, did Timothy finish strong? Did he finish his course? Was he faithful to the end? He was a protege of Paul, was he? Of course, many don't. In fact, the next passage, we're going to hear about a guy named Demas, who at one time appeared to be a faithful minister alongside Paul. But Paul says, Demas, in love with the world, has deserted me. Not everyone does. Did Timothy? Well, let me read you from a historical account about Timothy. I'm not going to tell you the book it's from, but some of you might know as I start reading this. Maybe you've read this before. Timothy was a celebrated disciple of St. Paul and Bishop of Ephesus, where he zealously governed the church until A.D. 97. At this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Katagagion, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry which exasperated the people 
And so they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful a manner that he expired of the bruises two days later. That's from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Did Timothy fulfill his ministry? Did he finish strong? Absolutely. He did. His life was poured out as a drink offering. And by God's grace, even though we probably won't die in the same manner which Timothy died or Paul, by God's grace, we too can finish strong. For Timothy, I have no doubt that these words from Paul echoed in his ears from the time he first read them to the time of his death. And my prayer is that they would echo in ours as well. Today is the, you've heard this before, it's the first day of the rest of your life. It's the beginning of the rest of your life, forgetting what lies behind. Let's seek the Spirit's power today to live in the present, a life poured out, an offering to God for the purposes of God. Let's fight the good fight of faith. Let's stay on course. Let's keep the faith so that by the grace of God, we may look forward, even lean forward joyfully expecting our Savior, the righteous judge, to come and crown us. I started uh, the message with the opening stanza of C.T. Studd's poem, and I'd like to finish with the last stanza. It goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, that's what we long for. That's what we want. Father, we realize in ourselves we are utterly weak.